And now, Cloak and Dagger on the Air presents Holmes and Watson in Act One of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's A Scandal in Bohemia, originally published in the June 25th, 1891 edition of The Strand Magazine. Sherlock Holmes, she is always the woman. I have seldom heard him mention her name under any other name. In his eyes, she eclipses and predominates the whole of her sex. It was not that he felt any emotion akin to love for Irene Adler. All emotions, and that one particularly, were abhorrent to his cold, precise, but admirably balanced mind. He was, I take it, the most perfect reasoning and observing machine that the whole world has seen. But as a lover, he would have placed himself in a false position. He, he never spoke of the softer passions, save with a jibe and a sneer. They were admirable things for the observer, excellent for, for drawing the veil from men's motives and actions, but for the trained reasoner to admit such intrusions into his own delicate and finely adjusted temperament was to introduce a distracting factor which might throw a doubt upon all of his mental results. Grit in a sensitive instrument, or crack in one of his own high power lenses, would not be more disturbing than a strong emotion in a nature such as his. And yet, there was but one woman to him, and that woman was the late Irene Adler of dubious and questionable memory. I had seen little of Holmes lately. My marriage had drifted us away from each other. My own complete happiness and the home-centered interests which rise up around the man who first finds himself master of his own establishment were, were sufficient to absorb all my attention. While Holmes, who loathed every form of society with his whole bohemian soul, remained in our lodgings in Baker Street, buried among his old books and alternating from week to week between cocaine and ambition, the drowsiness of the drug and the fierce energy of his own keen nature. He was still as ever deeply attracted by the study of crime and occupied his immense faculties and extraordinary powers of observation in following out those clues and clearing up all those mysteries which had been abandoned as hopeless by the official police. From time to time I heard some vague account of his doings, uh, of his summons to Odessa in the case of the Trepoff murder, of his clearing up the singular tragedy of the Atkinson brothers in Trocomoli, and finally of the mission which he had accomplished so delicately and successfully for the reigning family of Holland. Beyond these signs of his activity, however, which I merely shared with all the readers of our daily press, I knew little of my former friend and companion. One night, it was on the 20th of March, 1888, I was returning from a journey to the patient, uh, for I had now returned to civil practice, when, when my way led me through Baker Street. As I passed the well-remembered door, which must always be associated in my mind with my wooing and with the dark incidents of the study in Scarlet, I was seized with a, with a keen desire to see Holmes again and to know how he was employing his extraordinary powers. 
His rooms were brilliantly lit. Even as I looked up, I saw his tall, spare figure pass twice in a dark silhouette against the blind. He was pacing the room swiftly, eagerly, with his head sunk upon his chest, his hands clasped behind him. To me, who knew every mood and habit, his attitude and his manner told their own story. He was at work again. He had risen out of his drug-created dreams and was hot upon the scent of some new problem. I rang the bell and was shown up to the chamber, which had formerly been in part my own. His manner was not effusive, it seldom was, but he was glad, I think, to see me. With hardly a word spoken, but with a kindly eye, he waved me to an armchair, threw across his case of cigars, and indicated a spirit case and a gasogene in the corner. Then he stood before the fire and looked me over in his singular, introspective fashion. Wedlock suits you. I think, Watson, that you have put on seven and a half pounds since I saw you. <gasps> seven? Indeed. <laughs> I should have thought a little more. No, just a trifle more, I fancy, Watson. No. And in practice again, I observe. You did not tell me that you intended to go into harness. But, the, the, but then how do you know? I see it. I deduce it. How do I know that you have been getting yourself very wet lately, and that you have a most clumsy and careless servant girl? My dear Holmes, this is too much. You would certainly have been burned at the stake had you lived a few centuries ago. It is true that I had a country walk on Thursday and came home in, in a dreadful mess. As I have changed my clothes, I can't imagine how you deduce it. Well, as to Mary Jane, she's, she's incorrigible, and my wife has given her notice. But there again, I, I fail to see how you work it out. <laughs> it is simplicity itself. My eyes tell me that on the inside of your left shoe, just where the firelight strikes it, the leather is scored by six almost parallel cuts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Obviously, they have been caused by someone who is very carelessly scraped around the edges of the sole in order to remove crusted mud from it. Oh. Hence, you see, my double deduction that you have been out in vile weather and that you had a particularly malignant boot-slitting specimen of a London slavey. Oh. As to your practice, if a gentleman walks into my room smelling of idoliform or with a black mark of nitrate of silver upon his right forefinger, oh. and a bulge on the right side of his top hat to show where he has secreted his stethoscope. Oh. <laughs> I must be dull indeed if I do not pronounce him in, to be an active member of the medical profession. But when I hear you give your reasons, the thing always appears to me to be so ridiculously simple that I could easily have done it myself. Though in each successive instance of your reasoning, I'm baffled until you explain your process. Yet, I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. Oh, quite so. Holmes lit a cigarette and threw himself down into an armchair. You see, but you don't observe. Mm. The distinction is clear. <laughs> For example, you have frequently seen the steps that which lead up from the hall to this room. Yes, frequently. How often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then how many are there? Uh, how many? <laughs> I don't know. Quite so. You have not observed, oh. and yet you have seen. That is just my point. 
Now, I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. By the way, since you are interested in these little problems, and since you are good enough to chronicle one or two of my trifling experiences, you may be interested in this. Hmm. It came by the last post. Read it aloud. The note was undated and without either signature nor address. There will call upon you tonight at a quarter to eight o'clock, he had said, a gentleman who desires to consult you upon a matter of the very deepest moment. Your recent services to one of the royal houses of Europe have shown that you are one who may safely be trusted with matters which are of an importance which can hardly be exaggerated. This account of you we have from all quarters received. Be in your chamber, then, at that hour, and do not take it amiss if your visitor wear a mask. <laughs> this is indeed a mystery. What do you imagine that it means? I have no data yet. It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories, instead of theories to suit facts. Mm -hmm. But the note itself... What do you deduce from it? Now, I carefully examined the writing and, and the paper upon which it was written, endeavoring to imitate my companion's processes. Well, <clears throat> well the man who wrote it, it was presumably well-to-do. Such paper could not be bought, bought under half a crown a packet. It is peculiarly uh, strong and stiff. Peculiar, that is the very word. Hmm. It is not an English paper at all. Hold it up to the light. I did so, and I saw a large E with a small G, a P, and a large G with a small T woven into the texture of the paper. What do you make of that? Uh, the name of the maker, no doubt, or his monogram, rather. No, not at all. The G with a small T stands for Gesellschaft, hmm. which is the German for company. Hmm. It is the customary contraction like our co-period. Mm -hmm. P, of course, stands for Papier. Ah. Now, for the EG, let us glance at our continental gazetteer. Eglo, Eglonitz. Uh, ah, here we are, Egria. It is in a German-speaking country in Bohemia, not far from Karlsbad. Hmm. Remarkable as being the scene of the death of Wadenstein mm. and for its numerous glass factories and paper mills. Uh, <laughs> My boy, uh, what do you make of that? His eyes sparkled and he sent up a great blue triumphant cloud from his cigarette. Uh, so the paper was made in Bohemia. Precisely. And the man who wrote the note is a German. Do you note the peculiar construction of the sentence this account of you we have from all quarters received. Mm, yes. Mm. A Frenchman or Russian could not have written that. It is the German who is so uncourteous to his verbs. Mm. It only remains, therefore, to discover what is wanted by this German who writes upon bohemian paper and prefers wearing a mask to showing his face. Ah, and here he comes, if I am not mistaken. As he spoke, there was a sharp sound of horses' hoofs and grating wheels against the curb, followed by a sharp pull at the bell. Oh, a pair by the sound. Mm. Yes, 
A nice little brougham with a pair of beauties. A <laughs> hundred and fifty guineas apiece. There's money in this case, Watson, if there's nothing else. Uh, then I uh, think I'd better go, Holmes. Oh, no, 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 not a bit, Doctor. Stay where you are. I am lost without my Boswell, <laughs> and this promises to be interesting. It would be a pity to miss it. But your client... Never mind him. I may want your help. And so may he. Hmm. Uh, sit down in that armchair, Doctor, hmm? and give us your best attention. A slow and heavy step, which had been heard upon the stairs and in the passage, paused immediately outside the door. Then there was a loud and authoritative tap. Come in. A man entered who could hardly have been less than six feet six inches in height with the chest and limbs of a Hercules. His dress was rich, with a richness which would in England be looked upon as akin to bad taste. Heavy bands of astrakhan were slashed across the sleeves and the fronts of his double-breasted coat, while the deep blue cloak which was thrown over his shoulders was lined with flame-colored silk and secured at the neck with a brooch which consisted of a single flaming barrel which extended halfway up his calves and which were trimmed at the tops with rich brown fur completed the impression of barbaric opulence which was suggested by his whole appearance. He carried a broad-brimmed hat in his hand while he wore across the upper part of his face extending down past the cheekbones a black vizard mask which he had apparently adjusted that very moment, for his hand was still raised to it as he entered. From the lower part of his face, he appeared to be a man of strong character, with a thick hanging lip and a long straight chin, suggestive of resolution pushed to the length of obstinacy. Your hat might not. I told you that I would, would call. Pray, take a seat. This is my friend and colleague, Dr. Watson, who is occasionally good enough to help me in my cases. Whom have I the honor to address? You may address me as the Count von Kram, a bohemian nobleman. I understand that this gentleman, your friend, is a man of honor and discretion, whom I may trust with this a uh, matter of the most extreme importance. If not, I should much prefer to communicate with you alone. I rose to go, but Holmes caught me by the wrist and pushed me back into my chair. It is both, or none. You may say before this gentleman anything which you would may say to me. Then I must begin by binding you both to absolute secrecy for two years. At the end of that time, this matter will be of no importance. At present, it is not too much to say that it is of such weight. It may have an influence upon European history. I promise. And I. Yeah. You will uh, excuse this mask. The august person who employs me wishes his agent to be you. And I may confess at once that the title with, by which I have just called myself is not exactly my own. I was aware of it. The circumstances are of such great delicacy. And every precaution has to be taken to convince what might grow to be an immense scandal and seriously compromise one of the reigning families of Europe. To speak plainly, the matter implicates the great House of Ormstein, hereditary kings of Bohemia. I was also aware of that. 
our visitor glanced with some apparent surprise at the languid, lounging figure of a man who had been no doubt depicted to him as the most incisive reasoner and most energetic agent in Europe. Holmes slowly reopened his eyes and looked impatiently at his gigantic client. If your majesty would condescend to state your case, I should be better able to advise you. The man sprang from his chair and paced up and down the room in uncontrollable agitation. Then, with a gesture of desperation, he tore the mask from his face and hurled it upon the ground. You are right. I am the king. Why should I attempt to conceal it? Why, indeed. Your Majesty had not spoken before I was aware that I was addressing Wilhelm Gottsreich Sigismund von Olmstein, Grand Duke of Kasselfelstein, and hereditary king of Bohemia. But you, you can understand, you can understand that I am not accustomed to doing such business in my own person. Yet this matter was so delicate that I could not confide it to, to an agent without putting myself in his power. I have come incognito from Prague for the purpose of consulting you. Then, pray consult. The facts are briefly these. Some five years ago, during a, a lengthy visit to Warsaw, I made the acquaintance of the well-known adventuress, Irene Adler. The name is no doubt familiar to you. Hmm. Uh, kindly look her up in my index, Doctor. For many years, he had adopted a system of docketing all paragraphs concerning men and things, so that it was difficult to, to name a subject or a person on which he could not at once furnish information. In this case, I found her biography sandwiched in between that of a, a Hebrew rabbi and that of a staff commander who had written a monograph upon the deep sea fishes. Mm, let me see. Mm. Born in New Jersey in the year 1858. Contralto, mm. La Scala. Mm. Prima Donna Imperial Opera of Warsaw, yes. Retired from the operatic stage, huh? Living in London. Ah, quite so. Uh, Your Majesty, as I understand, became entangled with this young person, wrote her um, some compromising letters, and is now desirous of getting those letters back? Precisely so, but how? W uh, was there a secret marriage? None. No legal papers or certificates? None. Then I failed to follow, Your Majesty. If this young person should produce her letters for blackmailing or other purposes, how is she to prove their authenticity? There is the writing. <laughs> Forgery. My private notepaper. Stolen. My own seal. Imitated. My photograph. Bought. We were both in the photograph. Oh. Oh, dear. That is very bad. Uh, Your Majesty has indeed committed an indiscretion. Uh, I was mad, insane. You have compromised yourself seriously. Uh, I was only crown prince then. I was young, but I am 30 now. It must be recovered. We have tried and failed. Your Majesty must pay, must be bought. Ah, she will not sell. Stolen, then. Five attempts have been made. Twice, burglars, in my pay, ransacked her house. Once, we diverted her luggage when she traveled. Twice, she has been waylaid. There has been no result. No sign of it? Absolutely none. <laughs> it is quite a pretty little problem. But a very serious one to me. Very, indeed. 
And what does she propose to do with the photograph? To ruin me. But how? I... I am about to be married. Uh, so I've heard. To Clotilde Lothman von Sachs. <laughs> Men Meningen. Second daughter of the King of Scandinavia. You, you know how the strict principles of her family? She is herself the very soul of delicacy. A, a shadow of a doubt as to my conduct would bring the matter to an end. And Irene Adler? Threatens to send them the photograph. And she will do it. I know that she will do it. But you do not, you do not know her. She, she has a soul of steel. She has the face of the most beautiful of women and the mind of the most resolute of men. Rather than I should marry another woman, there are no lengths to which she would not go. None. You are sure that she has not sent it yet? I am sure. And why? Because she has said that she would send it on the day when the betrothal was publicly proclaimed. That will be next Monday. Oh, oh, then we have three days yet. Mm. <laughs> that is very fortunate, uh, as I have one or two matters of importance to look into just at the present. Your Majesty will, of course, stay in London for the present. Well, certainly. Uh, you will find me at the Langham under the name of the Count von Kram. Then I shall drop you a line to let you know how we progress. Ah, pray do so. I shall be all anxiety. Then, as to money... Uh, you have carte blanche. Absolutely. I tell you that I, I would give but one of the provinces in my kingdom to have that photograph. And for present expenses? Ah, there are 300 pounds in gold, 700 in notes. And mademoiselle's address? Is Brioni Lodge, Serpentine Avenue, St. John's Wood. Uh, one other question. Was the photograph a cabinet? It was. Hmm. Then, good night, Your Majesty, and I trust that we shall soon have some good news for you. And, good night, Watson. Mm -hmm. If you will be good enough to call tomorrow afternoon at 3 o'clock, mm -hmm. I should like to chat this little matter over with you. Thank you for listening to Act One of Cloak and Dagger on the Air's production of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's A Scandal in Bohemia. Our script was adapted for radio by Pete Firmbaugh, who also served as producer and director. Featured in tonight's production, John E. Riley as Sherlock Holmes, Robert J. Gaudio as Dr. John Watson, and Rob DeSantis as Count Von Krom. I'm your announcer, Bethany Firmbaugh. Our sound effects director was Carissa Martin, and our sound effects team, the Holy Foley Molies. Lake and Weaver provided our original score, and Shane Meredith managed our recording and sound. This production was recorded before a live studio audience on Saturday, May 18, 2019, at the main branch of the Public Library of Steubenville and Jefferson County in Steubenville, Ohio. Please join us next Saturday for Act 2 of Holmes and Watson in A Scandal in Bohemia. This has been a future past production.